Lovely. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see as your names have been dropping into the lobby, seeing lots of um, faces that I've missed for the last couple of years. And welcome to anybody who I've not met um, in the flesh before, or indeed who hasn't been to one of these sessions before. If you have, then you'll be familiar with the fact that I tend to talk about a few things that's come across my desk. Then I've had um, pre questions from a number of people and um, so I'm going to pick up on those topics and then we will pick up if anyone's got any other questions so um, it's your opportunity to ask for some some free advice um, as it were and you may well think of um, questions as we go along because of things that other people have said so um, if I can try and work out how to control my slides um, the first thing that I wanted to mention was just what's going on with tribunals. Just because I think the statistics are really interesting and perhaps um, might embolden employers to maybe be less fearful of tribunal cases. I know it's something that everyone in HR always worries about. Um, if you look at the ACAS statistics as to you know how many things they're resolving during the early conciliation phase it's only seven percent of cases that get started if you like at that, that early conciliation phase that end up in a final hearing at the tribunal so there's a massive dropout rate from the kind of threatening of claims through to what actually happens end so obviously some of the people who start early, early conciliation just don't take it any further forward don't issue a case at all um some issue but then 20 percent of those cases then fall away because the person withdraws um i've just had some success with that case that was driving me absolutely mad through july and august um to the point it wasn't affecting everybody who was a witness involved in its mental health um, managed to get the person to withdraw the claim, so that's fantastic. About 12% of cases get struck out because um, they're weak, um, they've been badly put together in some shape or form. Obviously, you do get about a third of cases that then settle at a later stage, um, and some uh, that might be through something like judicial mediation, uh, which is something I would recommend anyone think about if they've got a case where they've got a claimant who's got wild expectations uh, as to what they might be recovering. It might be a good idea to, if you know you are going to settle, perhaps um, use the judicial mediation route to um, address those wild expectations. So the numbers that actually go forward to a case is really, really low. And then even where those cases do go to a final hearing, the success rates, again, are really, really poor. So um, it's about 10% for unfair dismissal cases are successful. And it's even less for discrimination um, claims. It depends which kind of discrimination claim we're talking about. But, um, you know, sex discrimination, for example, would be 5%. Some of the others would be even lower. So we need to have more kind of um, uh, 
confidence in our convictions when we know we've treated somebody well and we've done our best and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, don't don't fear the tribunal too much. One of the other big themes that's been coming across my desk, as you might imagine, because of COVID and everything that everybody's been through in the last couple of years, is the mental health well-being side of things where you know I just mentioned that litigant in person who nearly drove us all mad in June and July um I've been saying on these sessions previously haven't I that everyone who says they're fine is probably lying because we've all had a tough time and you know, even the Employment Lawyers Association has shifted all of their training and focus away from kind of the traditional legal stuff into much more helping people with resilience. We've got a sleep session in the next couple of weeks, um, loads of talking about um, managing stress and, and those sorts of issues. And the elephant in the room, hence the picture, of course, is people's job design and, um, you know, the workload um, prior to letting you all into the lobby, we just have a little chit chat with the, the Yoke folks and everyone was saying that they are really busy and um, frantic in their, in their work. And I think that is the big issue now for employers um, going forward we already had a position prior to the pandemic where people were being asked to do perhaps two or three people's jobs that there might have been historically if we go back sort of pre the credit crunch in 2007-2008. So we already had people doing big jobs um, and that it seems to be getting worse because people are resigning a lot and, and moving jobs. Um, had a lot of that recently. So. I think organisations now, it's not going to be good enough for us to be focusing on the, you know, providing water and fruit baskets type of um, well-being strategy stuff. Um, we have to start addressing that elephant in the room. And you might have picked up on some of the things that other European countries are doing around things like the right to switch off legislation that's um, starting to creep into different European countries, um, different in different countries. But um, can we perhaps start looking at having a meaningful policy in the workplace around that, around what our expectations are for staff vis-a-vis um, -vis work life balance, their working hours and this issue of, you know, emails and things phone calls outside of those hours so just something to 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 think about and that kind of links quite closely to my next point really which has been about conflict I mentioned I think the last time we did one of these sessions probably six months ago that I was seeing a lot more conflict and um, we're starting to see stuff rear its head now as you might imagine um first big tension I think what employees want <laughs> expect versus what managers want and expect obviously hybrid working whether people are coming back to the office um employees being exhausted perhaps not had enough holidays not wanting to commute not wanting to work in the same way as they have before perhaps around long hours culture um versus managers wanting to get back to something that they regard as normal um from from previously and and seeing a lot of 
um, flexible working requests, people, if they're not getting what they want, maybe resigning and deciding to move on. Um, I'm just working with a business at the moment, reorganising an entire department. And the, the new contractual arrangements will involve um, covering the business need for a much longer period of time than is currently the case under the current contracts. And people are not willing to do it. They, they're saying, well, I, I don't want that alternative job. I will go somewhere else. Um, so real tension going on um, there at the moment. Furlough history starting to rear its head in um, things like appraisals, um, redundancies, um, where somebody might feel that they were uh, disadvantaged in some way because they were furloughed. It then can come out later on, definitely seeing a bit of that. Um, for example, if redundancies are made now, if somebody was furloughed historically, challenge then being raised about how they were put on furlough, whether they, they were selected fairly for that or whether, you know, they were a pregnant woman or something, um, that uh, they might have been able to argue that really that shouldn't have happened to them. Um, I was talking to a, a headmaster last week who um, said to me that he doesn't regard that he's doing his job if he hasn't got at least three grievances against him at any one time. Um, and I know my uh, sister-in-law, who's um, head of law in a university, has a similar sort of attitude that, um, you know, you, you're clearly not not doing your job if you haven't got an, a, enough um, complaints about you. Um, but I'm definitely seeing uh, increased volume of grievances. Partly, I think that's managers not talking to people not ironing stuff out early doors enough um, because of the pandemic, because of Zoom and, and Teams and just getting out of the habit of that face-to-face -face chat and that ability to iron stuff out early doors. Everyone's sort of retreated to their trenches and is using um, emails and things and, and it's just not good for, for people and, and, and for conflict management. So we need to try and get people back into treating each other like human beings and, and perhaps trying to avoid um, those um, issues. Lots of cases around unfair selection for redundancy, as you might imagine. Um, I mentioned the furlough point a minute ago, um, making sure people are fairly, um, if they are comparing people and you've had some people who've been working, some people who've been furloughed, having to try and even that out by discounting the furlough periods um, like we might do for you know maternity leave or something. Um, we've talked about this before, I know, um, but we're now starting to see some of the, the, the cases, if you like, um, really coming through. Um, so just be aware of that. I'm going to pick up on redundancy again um, in a minute because I've had a question specifically um, about that. We're also starting to see the first batch of sort of COVID related tribunal cases um, coming through and you'll be familiar with um, sort of 
the, the picture of justice um, with her scales and having to conduct that balancing um, when she's operating. And we're really seeing the judges doing that in these cases. Um, where employers have done their best, followed the guidance, been putting in place all the measures that have been advised, um, and you know juggling all the things that we've all been dealing with for the last two years then i think you can broadly categorize the judges as being quite fair and employer friendly um versus those cases where employers have clearly tried to cut corners um not done all the things that they've um, been suggested to do and, and treated people appallingly. So, you know, the people who were furloughed by text message, for example, then, you know, those employers are not um, faring so well in, 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 the, in the cases. Um, and that comes through even with the cases around things like Section 100 of the Employment um, Rights Act, where the employees are trying to argue they've been automatically unfairly dismissed because they've raised um, a health and safety concern or have, you know, um, refused to work because there's been some danger. Um, the, the judges are finding a pathway through for the employers who've, who've done the right thing um, and being more critical then of um, the employers who haven't. Um, so, um, you know, employees who've point blank refused to work are not going to fare very well. Where they could have worked from home and 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 an employer has um, unreasonably required them to come into work against the guidance at the time, then obviously they're going to get into to difficulty. And the same goes with the sort of detriment cases um, that we've been seeing as well. Um, Devil's in the detail, it always is with these things. Um, you know, we're seeing the same thing with um, some of the cases around things like changing contracts. Um, you know, employers who have followed the right processes, had consultation, discussed concerns with staff before rushing off and doing something are going to fare better than employers who've you know just imposed things on staff as they've gone along and um, i mentioned cancer as a disability just because i've i've settled um the case that i had um in relation to this where i was actually acting for the claimant who'd been dismissed um shortly after she'd had her first batch of treatment um, and obviously I can't talk about the details of who was involved, but let's just say the kind of employer, the size of the employer and the knowledge base of that employer, um, they really ought to have known better. And I find it shocking how often I do hear stories of employees who have been diagnosed, had treatment um, and then perhaps treated negatively in, in, in some way as regards their return to work um, and making reasonable adjustments and things going forward. So I just wanted to draw that to everybody's attention. Macmillan have got quite a good pack um, that you can apply for. 
um, and they'll mail you a physical uh, pack, but it's all on their website, obviously, um, in relation to um, dealing with reasonable adjustments and things. So always good to have a look at. Um, some good case studies there as well, if you are sort of putting training materials together for, for managers and things. Um, so um, just be aware of that. Um, I do sometimes see a theme in the cases where maybe the the employee, and I'm sure you've come across this, the employee perhaps comes back to work a bit too soon. It's not necessarily just cancer cases. Um, might be for financial reasons, according to your sick pay, but it may also be because somebody is just pushing themselves and they want to get back to work. And, you know, people can be their own worst enemies in, in that regard. Um, employers may experience, as in this particular case, that the employee is still suffering from the after effects of the treatment that they've received. Chemo brain is a thing. You can read all about it on the NHS website. Um, and it can impact somebody's performance um, and attendance and things for, for a period after they've returned. So, um, employers need to be mindful of all of that and weave that into return to work plans and take it step by step in any return to work plan and I'd say this for any condition what you set out at the beginning is this is our aim of how we get from you know you being off to you being back here doing your job full time it's a journey isn't it and those steps you can go forward and backwards and there should be reviews built in and you might plan for something to happen over a particular time scale, but those time scales might need to shift. And that's something that organisations are not very good at. I tend to see quite a rigid, doesn't matter what you've been absent with, you have a six week return to work plan. Um, and I think occupational health are just as rigid about that. And that's not necessarily the right way to go. It, it can be more flexible than that. So just just. Um, just remember that. Um, I think with cancer in particular, one of the things that employers could do, which might be beneficial to the employee, certainly from a confidence perspective, might be to have some kind of buddy system if you're big enough. So if there are employees in the workforce who have been through this life experience and have got the T-shirt, can they be mentoring and supporting other colleagues who are going through it as well. We do it for other things. Maybe we need to think about doing it um, with, with cancer. Um, and, you know, sometimes our standard form letters are not the way to go. We need to tweak things and make it appropriate to the particular circumstances. I remember probably about 10 years ago now, seeing some correspondence that Marks and Spencers had sent somebody, clearly their standard form, um, clearly sent without any thought to the particular individual circumstances, but I was fairly horrified um, at what they'd written because it was completely insensitive. So, you know, bear that in mind because um, people will claim um, harassment and victimisation and all those sorts of things. Given that, you know, the statistics by 2050 are that one in three of us are going to have cancer at some point, in our lives we've got to get better i think at at managing that one now one of the questions that i've had today from deborah it's a really good question is around 
um, using electronic signatures because um, that's something that perhaps even if you didn't in the past, you've had to do more of during the pandemic um, because we've not been able to be face to face with each other. And her question um, was around whether or not you have to use some kind of software designed specifically for that purpose, like DocuSign, or there is a function in Adobe Pro if you if you use that, and there are others as well. Um, and what the sort of legal rules are about this. There's been in the last couple of years a sort of law commission review of of, of all of this. Um, and the upshot of that is everybody has agreed that it is just as legally binding to have um, a signature done in this manner as a sort of traditional old fashioned wet signature on a document. Um, so I don't think we need to worry about the principle of having a document signed in this way. I think we probably want to give a little bit of thought as to the how we're doing it. Um, there's always a risk, and this happens, you know, with wet signatures as well. Like, for example, I've seen a contract of employment come back to me when I've asked for a copy of it this week, where um, the original document that had been sent to the employee was saved as one file, and the uh, signature pages had obviously been printed off signed separately from the document, scanned in and saved separately. So you've got two documents in effect. Now, in that scenario, you're kind of taking it on trust that those two go together and that that contract is the contract that the employee was signing when they were signing the bit of paper. Um, so I have the same issue when you know I send people settlement agreements and they just print out the one page, the signature page, and send me that. Um, it, the ideal is obviously to have one document with the signature on it. So there's no question about what was being signed up to. Um, and that might be doing a bit of jiggery pokery and reuniting a signature page with a document when you save it. Um, which I have to do all the time with, with settlement agreements. So um, it doesn't really matter how we do it, whether we use one of those highfalutin pieces of software that will um, give us a, an ele electronic footprint to say exactly uh, which contract was signed or whether we're doing it physically by scanning the document and saving it together. But I think the important thing is we are keeping it together. I'm not 100% convinced about somebody typing their name into a document as their signature. The reason being that I can foresee that somebody could in the future say, well, that wasn't me anyone could type James Cheatham into the document. Um, so I think an actual signature um, or using one of the, the pieces of software that, where that enables you to then create a signature would be the way the way forward. And um, the other thing I just mentioned on that front is 
some documents do need to be witnessed and I've seen a trend because people are trying to go towards more um, user-friendly language in contracts and make them more plain English and all of those good things. It was interesting yesterday, a client sent me a contract that I'd obviously done for them probably over 15 years ago. And it just seemed quite stuffy now, if you compare what I would produce today with what I said then. Even though it said the same things, it just said the same things in a different way. It just shows how we've all shifted. Um, and I think that's a good thing, but you have to be really careful because there are certain things, um, particularly intellectual property clauses that I've mentioned there, but also things like um, if you haven't got consideration or a payment being given for new restrictive covenants, for example, you could get into problems. Um, so sometimes there is a requirement that the document has to be signed by a deed and witnessed by somebody else. So if there's a power of attorney in the document, for example, so quite often in senior executives contracts, it will need to be signed by a deed, which if you are using signing software means that the person's witness is also going to have to sign it and it makes it more complicated and people don't read instructions. As you know, when you send people, you know, you need to do this and your witness needs to do that, you can guarantee that they'll sign in the wrong box and you'll end up having to get it all done again or something. So that was a good question, Deborah. Um, the next question that I had was around homeworking and, and been speaking to lots of employers about hybrid working, what's in their contracts. Um, as I've said, I think previously on one of these sessions for now, I think the way forward for most employers is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't do a wholesale change of your contracts. Stick to a more your workplace is the office but you're entitled to work from home according to our home working policy from time to time and then you've got flexibility you can you can develop that home working policy as as things change and as the organization um, requires but the question that i've had is around um needing to access the person's home and that is something that um you do need to put into either the contract if you're doing a homeworking contract or in your policy with a section that makes it clear that it is a contractual issue because presumably most of your policies you say they're not because you don't want to have to consult every time you change it. Um, in the specific um, circumstance that the person was asking me about, um, they had an employee who's got a second screen that they've been given to work off and um, they've either not been able to set it up properly or have um, refused to do so. So the second screen they believe is currently being stored in a wardrobe um, rather than on the desk where it should be and they've observed some issues with the person's performance um, and they think that that might relate to difficulties in looking at everything on one screen and really they should be working with two. So to what extent can we as an employer get involved and um, make that person um, do something with the second screen? Um, 
as I've said on the slide here, I think we need to be reserving the right to enter somebody's home because it is their home. We have to have the ability to be able to go there um, to do health and safety risk assessments, if, if that's the way we're going to do it, um, to conduct things like sickness absence meetings, perhaps, and to do things like collect and maintain our IT kit and, and other property. So that's the sort of base that you want to um, to start from. Um, with the specific situation where somebody isn't using the equipment that we've asked them to, I think it, it becomes a sort of reasonable instruction issue um, that we can be saying to somebody, you need to be doing this like we would with sort of performance management generally. And then, of course, if they refuse to do it, um, and to follow the instructions that IT have given them to put it together, then, you know, we are into performance management and, and disciplinary, perhaps, um, territory. So just because it's not in your office that this is happening, I don't think you should shy away from addressing the issue. Um, just because it's at somebody's home doesn't mean, you know, they shouldn't be using it, because at the end of the day, you're paying them to do their job during those working hours so they should be using your equipment to do it. My tip for home working policies is to make it a privilege to be working from home um, so if there are performance issues it can be withdrawn so you could require somebody to come in you know if they need to be supervised, if they need to be mentored, if they need to be developed um, because there are issues over performance, um, they need to expect that it might happen that they have to come in to do that um, as well. I mentioned earlier, I've seen quite a few flexible working requests around, you know, the balance of homework versus um, working from home. Um, and you know employee challenge to what employers want um the key of course to a flexible working request is those eight business reasons that you can say no um for and you know line managers not having a binary yes no answer it's about explaining the why why is it a no what are the things if we look at how homeworking has been working when we've forced people to do it through lockdown etc and government restriction what are the things that are being missed what are the things that um we can evidence are not being done because a lot of employees are saying well um you know i'm doing all right at this working from home lark i don't need to be traveling back to the to the workplace but it may be that some duties that require you know physical being there um are being lumped onto somebody else and are making their job unmanageable going back to our elephant in the room again um it may be that um there are some tasks that are being done that we need to start looking at other ways of doing it in order to make working from home work properly because it isn't at the moment so you have to challenge line managers to get into the detail of it and to start articulating the why if you want to be able to articulate to the employees why we're saying um, no. 
GDPR question. So Lisa asked, asked this question. Um, in her specific case, it was around um, some trustees who have got organisational email addresses, but would prefer for those to be forwarded to their personal email addresses, um, presumably so they can pick them up on devices without having to log into the employer's system, make their lives easier. And um, of course, whilst those emails are on the work system, the employer's got control over them, um, control over the security and you know technical measures that are, uh, are made to secure that data, and you know can access them for subject access request purposes if if they get one of them. Can be controlling, archiving, deleting, um, all of all of those things that that, that go hand in hand with GDPR, um, and potentially as soon as we start sending stuff outside of our nice tight knit circle, we get into well, um, we haven't got those protections. Um, around those things anymore. So that might be a reason why we wouldn't want to go down um, that road. Um, from a GDPR perspective, you'll be aware of the requirement to explain to anybody what we're doing with their data. And we usually do that through a privacy notice. Um, I suspect that your average privacy notice doesn't deal with anything like this. So um, potentially, if we haven't told people that data could be being sent to third parties effectively in this way, um, there could be an issue there because it's like, think of your privacy notice as your foundation building blocks, your first line of bricks, um, everything else, in, in GDPR is kind of built on that. And if you haven't got that at the bottom, then you, you're going to have a problem and your wall is going to collapse. Um, certainly potential criticism from ICO and potential criticism from employees, etc. if, if data is being used in a way they weren't expecting. Um, in terms of pathways through the Data Protection Act, um, You've always got to think about, you know, what is our pathway through? And there is usually a, a, a way through. This is where I struggle here as to what your pathway through would be. Um, you're probably going to have to rely on legitimate interests. But the there's a proportionality angle to the legitimate interest pathway, where you have to show it's necessary for you to be doing something. And I'm not sure the ICO would be convinced that it's, it is necessary um, to be working in this way. Um, so just give that some thought. The other issue is subject access. If stuff's going outside and we get a subject access request from a data subject, we then have to um, get the trustees in this particular case to provide you with any data that they've been creating from personal email addresses. Um, now you might think, oh, well, you know, we've got no control over personal devices of individuals, 
But interestingly, I had to research this a couple of years ago for a, for a client who'd been using his personal email address, not his company email address. And the ICO's attitude is that if um, email is being used, for example, for work purposes or for the purposes of the organisation, um, then it is within scope and they would expect you to be asking the trustees in this particular case for for that data that they've created. So um, I, I just take care from that perspective as well. Um, there's also a niggle in the back of my mind around that when people are doing things on their personal devices and you know you see this with use of things like um, messenger, WhatsApp groups, etc., is that if people have got it in their minds that it's a less formal um, environment, shall we say, that they're in, there can just be that little bit of temptation to shoot from the hip a little bit more, um, say things in a way that are more informal and hand in hand with that the potential for things to go wrong a bit more I find with things like WhatsApp and, and, and Messenger and, and things so again with personal email I'd have a concern about that the other thing of course is confidentiality of information and if our systems are secure and we're happy with that but there's more risk of personal email addresses being hacked vulnerable to attack in some way um then you know that might create issues around your intellectual property your confidential information so just be be mindful uh, of that as well um i had a last minute question so i haven't actually done a slide on it from janet about um covid19 and vaccination status and in her particular case um parent company um wanting to understand the stats across the european countries um at a sort of generic level i understand um as to uh who's been vaccinated and covid history potentially so um obviously concern there from janet about um the implications of, of, of doing that um my first response when I was thinking about this was to actually wonder, well, if this is a parent company just trying to, you know, understand what's going on in the different countries around around Europe, do we need to be giving any personal data anyway? You know, is it the sort of question that by looking at the national statistics or the statistics for Wales, um, and the things being published by government and um, the um, st the statistical um, people, um, is that going to be enough to sort of fill the need? Um, so I, I, I'm not quite sure what our current data is here, but if it's that, you know, they think about 60%, 66%, I think it was the last time I heard, of the workforce have been um, vaccinated, you know, is that enough to, to answer the question? Um, the second way that you might go about it would be to um, do an anonymous survey of staff 
to ask them the question. Um, people might be more likely to give you an answer as to whether they've chosen to be vaccinated um, and whether they've had COVID or whether they, they believe they have. Um, if we are explaining to them that this is literally just a, a global um, data gathering exercise and it's going to be done anonymously and you know the data isn't even going to be kept in the UK sort of thing you might get more cooperation that way um, but any data that you gathered would be potentially inaccurate because I think whenever you do any of those surveys you don't get 100% take up and cooperation so you always have to build in the sort of reliability factor of that if we did decide to actually go further and be asking specific individuals about their own specific positions um, for whatever reason you know we decided to as an employer then we are into the gdpr implications of um obtaining and storing um health data so we're into the, the extra layers of protection that go with what used to be sensitive personal data in old money. Um, there are always pathways through, as I, I've, I've said earlier. Um, but and you know, the ICO has been has been supportive in, of employers having health data around the COVID situation. Um, you know, you're not forbidden from doing it but it's balancing out the doing and collecting of the information with all the things that you have to do under the GDPR, as I've obviously just mentioned in terms of explaining exactly what that data is going to be used for. Um, there's always a risk of mission creep. So we tell people we're only going to use this data for X and then other people want to use that data in a different way and of course we might not have told people we're going to do that so there's always that risk and then you know all the implications around um how we store it um and make sure that no harm comes to that data um so those were just my my thoughts on that it'd be interesting to know how many of you are collecting and keeping that kind of information and whether you've had positive or negative experiences in terms of asking people on what they've said. I said I'd come back to redundancy. Um, one of the questions that I've had, his question was around pools and selection criteria in redundancy situations. It's always worth remembering is that the range of reasonable responses test applies. Case from Lawson Richardson, it's quite old now, I think it was late 90s case, um, that really should give you confidence that just because the employee believes that the pools should have been done a particular way doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. The employment tribunal aren't going to say, well, you should have done it this way. They have to say, is the way that you have done it within the range of reasonable responses? So that's quite a, a, a generous sort of margin that you have to operate in there. I always start by thinking if we drew a structure chart for this organisation and we drew, you know, who reports to who, 
and we looked at that and we looked at the roles you know what would the pool look like on that piece of paper because that gives us a starting point as to levels um, that people operate at I then tend to think what happens in real life so if this person goes on holiday or if they're on sick or if they go on maternity leave how would we cover the role and if the answer to that is that you know the duties tend to get shared between different people then we start to see where the overlaps are and where um, actually the pool might need to be slightly different to the immediate reaction that it's you know this particular job title if we're talking different levels so maybe we've got a supervisor or a manager and a lower tier person um, are there actually differences between what those people do in real life you know I've come across I don't know factory floor situations where there's supervisors and really the supervisor position is quite minimal in terms of what the supervisor might do it's things like you know filling in a form once a week or dealing with the holiday forms or something um you know that might not be a big enough difference to say that that the supervisors should be outside of a pool um if we look at the job descriptions if we look at what people are really doing and it's, it's clear that there is a differential that might lead us to look at the pool in a different way in terms of selection criteria um i've listed there what are probably the most common ones that get used avoid le length of service last in first out type um criteria these days because of the age discrimination implications but that doesn't mean you can't use perhaps length of service is something like a tiebreaker if you had people on on the same scores and i always try and tailor the selection criteria that are being used to the particular pools so within a redundancy exercise quite often you have mini redundancy exercises within it according to the departments that are being um, affected um, and it's about looking pool by pool at what is needed by the business going forward um, so employees will have their own view as to what should be used as selection criterion but sometimes they might be proposing something that is not meaningful to the employer i would try and have five or six things on my matrix you know not 15 20 things that start to become very very complex discounting disability is a biggie time on maternity leave discount that make sure we're comparing apples with apples um absence i tend to look at a two-year period and use a multiplier then for people who've got less than two years service in terms of trying to agree these with trade union reps you may struggle um often they don't want to be seen to sort of favor anyone so they tend to just object to whatever you you propose um but you know be seen to try and agree and i know you're probably told you know avoid subjectivity objectivity is the way forward and um, certainly you know can we evidence any of the scores is is, is important but um quite often it's about unpicking what 
a line manager is talking about. So something like attitude or flexibility or potential, some of these headline terms. Quite often, I find if you actually ask a line manager, well, what are you talking about when when you're thinking about potential? They can then start giving you phrases um, and examples that enable you to break that down into something else um, that is a bit more meaningful. Um, trying to use more than one manager when you're doing the scoring is important so that you can counter any accusations of bias. That's quite protective for the manager as well if somebody else has been involved. And the bit that I find most I have to go back on when somebody sends me a matrix and says, what do you think of this? My number one um, comment will always be, OK, you've set out leadership skills and you're going to score between one and a five. What would it look like for me to get a five? What would it look like for me to be scored a three? What would it look like for me to be scored a one? And that's usually the weak spot. And if you can get managed to articulate the answer to that, that's good guidance that can then go with your matrix. Um, and it can be illustrative to the tribunal of what it was you were looking for um, and really does does sort of give you the why behind something. Um, road test whatever you come up with first and, and check it works. You know, if it, if it doesn't work and you're going to end up with, you know, 33 people all scoring um, within one or two marks of each other, that is not going to be a healthy outcome. Um, let's reverse engineer it and um, tweak it until it does work um, a bit better. And I'd like to see candidates at the end coming out with some clear water between each other, not necessarily a huge gulf, but that there are you know, clear gaps between people. The tribunal isn't likely to actually criticise the criterion that you choose, because again, you know your business best, you know what things are important to you going forward, what you want to dwell on. What they're more likely to do is criticise how they were applied. So let's say you used productivity uh, as the score. They're more likely to criticise a manager who hasn't looked at all the right information before coming up with their productivity score. Um, so that's where you need to focus your attention really is perhaps on training on how to score for managers and making sure that they're doing it in a, in a, in a fair way um, based on, on something that they can then explain to a, a tribunal. So um, I can remember a barrister talking about cross-examining some um, line managers in relation to um, how they've done the scoring and the the explanation they got from those managers was so wildly different that it kind of became clear that they were kind of making it up as they, they went along, really. So um, they were criticised for that. So that's what I would say um, on that front. Very interesting question from Robin. Robin, you get the um, you get the prize for the best question. Most interesting question. And I'd like to see what everyone else thinks of this one as well. Um, Talking about mental health, is there anything we can do as employers to pre prevent problems from happening before they start? My gut reaction to that when I saw it was to say, well, 
think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about let's give people jobs that are a sensible size and design manageable before before we start impacting on on their mental health not enough employers are using stress related risk assessments to actually before they even employ a person look at a role and start saying well where are where are the risks here from a mental health perspective from a stress at work perspective so maybe have a look at the hse um toolkits around that i know it's something that they are really focusing on at the moment i'm signed up to their sort of weekly alerter and last week's was all about sort of coming out of the pandemic this is where the focus is going to be at a practical level i would say let's look at what the job used to be five years ago if you're if you've been around long enough 10 years ago maybe even 20 years ago what has mushroomed in this job what has changed what are the things that are now potentially going to make it harder to do the job than it used to be um can we strip that job back down to what's really important in the role um because i think that's a big issue as well is People are so bombarded with a myriad of everything that they're supposed to be doing all the time that we lose sight of the core purpose um, and, and the priority order of the things that we need to be doing. So maybe having, having a look at that, but it would be really interesting. Um, James, if anyone has chucked anything in, in the comments, then please do, do shout out. Um, she also asked about whether there was what what three things I would pick as a essential training for employees and of course you could I mean you could just pick all sorts couldn't you and um, so I plumped for these three see what you think I think particularly these days the need to have employees who are aligned to our culture is 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 really really important I, I did an example this week of a, a manager who was behaving in a in a manner that was completely contrary to um, the values of, of an organisation. Um, so, an understanding of of what that really means for this organisation, because it's very easy to have our poster on the wall with our visions and values, but actually, what does that look like here? I also planned for dignity at work, and I've put it in in speech marks because I'm trying to say. I'm not talking about traditional equality training or diversity training. I can't quite put my finger on what I am trying to say here, but I I think it's really important for us to start looking at the real lived experience of people in organizations. And I'm not quite sure how we do this from a from a training perspective, but for example, one of the things that the Employment Lawyers Association has done this year um, as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement was to um, put together a training module that took place over uh, a whole month where every single day you would get a small article, a little video, um, something to read, something to digest about issues relating to race and work 
and I found it quite profound in terms of people sharing their experiences, talking about their lives, in terms of being able to get an understanding of the microaggressions that people were dealing with, for example, in the workplace, in a way which traditional telling you that there's an Equality Act kind of training just is never, ever going to achieve. And it just makes me think, you know, can we be doing more um, to understand, you know, the disabled person who is worried in the workplace about, you know, what happens to them when there's a fire and they can't make it down the stairs. Um, you know, the lady in work who's going through the menopause, whose desk is, you know, miles away from the toilet, um, where there isn't a, a window or the introvert who, you know, doesn't feel comfortable in speaking in meetings. And it's that kind of little nuggets of information about real people, about their working lives and how we can get people to understand more about the other human beings that we work with is what what I'm trying to say I think and thirdly um I picked conflict management because most people don't know what their own patterns are and behaviors are around conflict themselves so if you don't understand your own um habits then you know you might not understand um, how you differ from others um, and it's about giving people I think tools to maybe reframe um, what they're saying and doing sometimes into a less confrontational um, manner I don't know what what other things other people would pick but those were the the three things that I plumped for and then um, this is something that I think you can all help with as well um, what are the things that you've done that you think are helping with employee retention and employees being happy. For me, I don't think it is about induction um, necessarily. I think it's about managers. You know that adage about people don't leave a job, they leave a manager. And we're really bad in the UK at not tooling up our managers. We do not teach people how to be a manager we don't really support people in how to be a manager. We expect them to sort of gain those skills by osmosis. Um, and like I said, with the, the cultural issue a minute ago, we can have the best um, policies, we can have the best culture in an organisation, but unless the manager is on track with those things, then the employee reporting to that manager is always going to ha have problems. So um, that's why why I say I, don't, I didn't think it was actually about induction, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if anyone has done anything um, that they, um, you know, they, they can share with the rest of the group uh, as something that they, they think is, is making people happy. Of course, we've got the big resignation everyone keeps talking about I've certainly spoken to a lot of um a lot of people recently where you know people are choosing to do things differently having reassessed their working lives so you know employees are a little bit in the ascendancy at the moment so um we do need to be thinking about the issues of retention Lastly, Leanne asked um, about menopause, and this is something that you might say when James asks you what subject you want us to do the next session in 2022 on, this might be something that you want to talk about further. 
my recommendation on this issue is that we need to be weaving it a little bit into everything that we do um so it's not just about having you know it's a good thing if we can train managers to understand it a little bit more um and my experience of doing that is that people do want to know um did a session for for an employer with um consultancy and they left it open and it was a lunchtime thing who could attend and they were worried that they were only going to get you know women of a certain age coming to the session to share their war stories and actually I was really heartened by how many men turned up and went you know we get that we don't know enough about this and we want to know and we're not afraid to talk about it and actually maybe we're on the cusp of you know recently had discussion in parliament didn't we we're on this cusp where traditionally yes it has been a taboo that wasn't talked about but actually we're moving now into a place where it is being talked about and so it does need to become part and parcel of everything so when we're managing sickness when we're managing performance when we're potentially disciplining somebody a bit like any other health issue stroke disability that could emerge we need to have that antenna working so if we get somebody mentioning this as an issue we don't just carry on plow on through you know discipline the person give them a warning or whatever it is we need to actually say okay let's stop let's pause let's get some medical advice about how this particular issue is affecting you like we should for any health issue that comes up in that way um, and let's understand the position before we go making any decisions or doing anything um, rash so that's what I would say say on the menopause uh, we actually have a question on the chat for you, Anna, from Craig Stacey. Hiya, Craig. I can see you. What's Craig's question? Um, so, yeah, apologies, Craig, if you submitted it. I just checked. and I don't think I had it through, but we have it here. So all good. Um, so it's on the meeting chat, Anna. Um, but he's basically said, um, what is an employer entitled to know about employees' health? E.g. we need to set up travel insurance and the premium clearly depends on pre-existing health conditions. Can I ask employee to elaborate on the health condition for this purpose? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you've got a good reason for asking the question. Um, and it's about explaining to the employee why you need, you know, why you're asking, isn't it? Um, this is in order to get the insurance that we want to put in place for you. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks. That was a nice, easy one. Anyone else got something they want to throw me with? Um, I don't have anything else through myself. Well, um, I, yeah, if we don't have any other questions, I think we will leave it there in that case, because um, what I can do, I, again, as always, I'll uh, get it all typed up um, and I can uh, just share with everyone and also share the slides um, and the recording. Um, so, yeah, it just uh, might take me a few days to get it all together. But um, but yeah, that will be coming through. Um, so I'll make sure to share that with everyone who attended. No problem. Um, I can't quite believe that I'm going to say see you all in 2022. I mean, that's just 
that's wrong, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, James will no doubt ask you about topics that you'd like us to speak about, whether you like this format and we do the same again. Um, I know we've already discussed, James and I, whether we go back to face-to-face -face sessions, um, whether you like this format. Um, obviously, I miss the sort of just chatting with you all um, aspect of the face-to-face, -face, whether we do a bit, bit of both in 2022. So when James asks you the question, please give him your feedback and we'll attempt to um, try and keep everyone happy. Yeah, yeah, it would just be great to hear everyone's opinion on that, really. And if you'd like, if we did do a return to in-person events, if you would want to attend or if it kind of works doing it like this, because then it's just logging on for an hour in between meetings and work stuff and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, I'll circulate a mini little survey as well and just get everyone's thoughts on that. Um, and we can go from there for the new year. We don't have any dates or anything yet, so we'll keep it pretty loose. And um, yeah, we'll be in touch uh, with this event's um, materials and then also in touch later on about events for next year. Have a good rest of the day, everyone. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye.